We're going to be in just a few moments in Philippians chapter 1. Over the past 18 years that Christine and I have been raising our four daughters together, uh, we have taken literally thousands of pictures uh, we've had our cameras with us, and then when we had smartphones, we had those phones with us. We snapped easily thousands of pictures over the last 18 years. And it was uh, just over a year ago, our summer vacation in 2019, that we had one of the most enjoyable vacations we ever had, and we took lots of pictures. Uh, we joined our one of our, our good uh, friends, uh, families, the Smiths, over in Carson City, Nevada, and we spent four days with the Smith family. Uh, they've got one son, Xander, and he's about Kara's age, and so we had a great time that week. Uh, it was the 4th of July week, so on the 4th we hiked up a hillside overlooking Carson City and watched uh, the fireworks from the hilltop. We took a lot of pictures that night. Uh, another day that week we went into Reno, and, and uh, we went for several hours into this trampoline park, and we jumped on the trampolines and climbed the climbing walls and played about six games of laser tag. We had a blast. And we took pictures that day. And then one of those days we were there in Carson City, we went to Lake Tahoe, which I believe is one of the most beautiful lakes in the entire country. And we went to Lake Tahoe and went for the first time for me uh, to the west side of that lake, away from all the towns, just beautiful scenery. And we're going to put this picture on the screen for you. There we were on this west side of Lake Tahoe, on this ridge, overlooking the beautiful lake. And at one point, as my daughters were all sitting on a large rock next to Xander, uh, they were eating their lunches. To their right was this gorgeous waterfall trickling down into Lake Tahoe. And out in the distance, we saw that beautiful uh, blue lake and then the, the light blue sky up above. It was a gorgeous scene. I love this picture. In fact, this picture is the wallpaper on my laptop computer. And so I look at this picture, and one of the things that I think about when I see this picture is, I am a very blessed man. There's so much that I have to be thankful for. God is good, isn't he? God is so good to me. And I know that God has been good to you as well. Earlier in the service, I encouraged you to jot down at least three things that you are thankful for today. Three things that you're thankful for this week. And I want to share with you my top three. Number one, I'm thankful for Jesus Christ, my Savior. He has been so good to me. Number two, I'm so thankful for my family, for my wife and my four daughters. And number three, I'm very, very thankful for you. I really am. I'm very thankful for our church family at Impact. This church has been so good to me. You and our church family have been so good to me. And this Thanksgiving, I'm thanking God for you. And, and that's going to be our focus today as we open up Philippians to chapter 1. And we look at this great passage where Paul shares from his heart his deep, deep gratitude and thankfulness for his Christian brothers and sisters in the city of Philippi. At the time of the writing, Paul was hundreds of miles removed from them, but they were still his partners in ministry, and he was so thankful for them. I'm calling today's message, What Are You Thankful For? So be in Philippians chapter 1 with me, please. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, 
starting in verse 2. Philippians is one of the most encouraging books in the whole Bible. There's only four little chapters in this book. And I encourage you this Thanksgiving week to read all four chapters as part of your devotion time. It'll help prepare your mind and heart to be very, very thankful as you get to Thanksgiving Day in just four days. Four chapters, just four days till Thanksgiving. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 2. This is how God's Word reads. Paul writes, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Isn't that an uplifting passage? Isn't that a great passage of Scripture? Paul starts out in verse 2 by saying, I thank God for you. Say that with me. I thank God for you. And he spends the next 10 verses opening up this book of Philippians, letting us know, I have you on my mind. That's in verses 3 through 6. I have you in my heart. That's in verses 7 and 8. And I have you in my prayers. That's in verses 9 through 11. That's such a a simple yet powerful outline of these 10 verses. I have you in my mind. I have you in my heart. And I have you in my prayers. Let's look at each of these three beautiful sections of this passage. Look again at verse 2. The standard Jewish greeting for 3,000 or so years has been shalom, which of course translates as peace. The Jewish people, when they greeted someone, they wanted to uh, bless them with peace. They wanted the peace of Almighty God, their Creator, to be upon each and every person who they greeted. And so for literally thousands of years, uh, Jews have greeted each other with this wonderful greeting of shalom, this wonderful greeting of peace. And the Christians, those especially who came out of Judaism, added to that blessing of peace, the blessing of grace. And so what Paul says here became a very common greeting in the early years of the Christian church, particularly in those Jewish Christian circles. Grace and peace to you, he says. Remember that grace We can define grace this way, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Isn't that good? That's what grace is, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's undeserved favor. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve to go to heaven. 
We don't deserve to have a relationship with our creator who is perfectly holy. But by God's grace through Christ, we can enjoy those blessings anyway. This is such a beautiful Christian greeting. Paul extends that peace and grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ to each of us who read this letter, including you. Look at verses 3 through 6 again. Paul begins thanking God for his Christian brothers and sisters in Philippi. He makes it clear, I have you on my mind. I have you on my mind. Paul writes in verses 3 through 5, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. These three little verses are so, so good. But I especially want to draw your attention to two key words. First is the word joy. Say that word with me. Joy. Isn't that a beautiful word? Three little letters, but such a powerful, powerful word. One of the reasons I urge you to spend some time in the book of Philippians this week is because it is a book that is full of joy. Wouldn't you agree that in 2020, we need joy more than ever before? Amen? We definitely do. Here in these four chapters of Philippians, catch this, Paul mentions joy 16 times. That's a lot of joy. I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again. A church isn't doing its job if the pastor never talks about sin or hell or repentance. But it's also just as true that a pastor isn't doing his job if he doesn't once in a while talk about the joy that we have in the Lord. Amen. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So we're going to talk about joy over the next few minutes. I assume nobody has an issue with that because we need to talk about joy. Amen. Especially this being Thanksgiving week. Now, it's important for us to understand what joy is and what joy isn't. So, for starters, we must understand that there is a big difference between joy and happiness. There's a big difference. Happiness is not joy and joy is not happiness. Happiness, we could define this way. Happiness is a temporary pleasant feeling that is usually grounded in pleasant happenings. Did you catch that? It's a temporary pleasant feeling that is usually grounded in pleasant happenings. When you think of the word happiness, think of the word happenings. Happiness usually works this way. If the happenings in and around my life are good, chances are I'll be happy. If the happenings in and around my life are kind of lousy, I'll probably be unhappy. Our happiness goes up and down and down and up because happiness, to a very large extent, is based on happenings. And sometimes our happenings are good and sometimes they're lousy. Sometimes our circumstances around us are are, are good. Sometimes they're not so good because our circumstances change, don't they? And the moods of those around us are constantly changing. And the the annoying problems and the hardships that we face from day to day are constantly changing. And so happiness also comes and goes. So when it comes to happiness, keep these two things in mind. Number one, happiness is temporary. And number two, happiness is highly dependent upon our happenings. But that's not the case with joy. 
Joy is much, much different. I like how Pastor John MacArthur defines joy. He defines it this way. Joy is the settled conviction that God sovereignly controls the events of life for believers' good and His glory. Joy is grounded in our unchanging God and never in our changing circumstances. Isn't that good? Joy is grounded in our unchanging God and never in our changing circumstances. I want you to just take a moment and and soak in this truth. Joy is a settled conviction. The jury's not out. It is settled. The verdict has already been made. It is a settled conviction. Grounded in our unchanging God. Joy is this settled conviction. Grounded in this absolute confidence that despite how bad our circumstances are, no matter how ugly they look, no matter how dire they seem, no matter how painful they feel, God is at work for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God is going to work. God is working. And I'm just going to receive it and trust that God's going to do His thing as I continue to walk in obedience to His commands. God's got it all worked out. It's a settled conviction. So no matter how crazy my circumstances may be, I choose joy. Amen? Joy is much different than happiness. When it comes to happiness, circumstances are everything. But when it comes to joy, circumstances are irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Joy is never grounded in changing circumstances, but in the unchanging truth of God's character and God's promises. It really does boil down to this. Happiness is grounded in stuff. Joy is grounded in God. What a difference. Happiness grounded in stuff. Joy grounded in God. So church family, I want to tell you this morning something that you need to hear. You ready? You bring me a whole lot of joy. Amen? Sometimes you bring me happiness. It's nice to get the little gift cards once in a while, a little pat on the back for Pastor Appreciation Day. Those things are really nice. But I want you to know this morning that you bring me joy because you bring me God. It's true. You bring me God. I want you to take another look at verses 4 and 5 to see what I mean. Paul writes, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The, The second key word that I want to share with you from this opening little section of this passage is in verse 5. It's the word partnership. It's a translation of the Greek word koinonia, which traditionally has been translated as fellowship. And so the older King James says, uh, I thank God for our fellowship in the gospel. And so the NIV translates that word koinonia as partnership. But I want to talk to you about that more traditional word fellowship for a few moments. You see, fellowship is a word that Christians use a lot. Uh, We talk about uh, having fellowship over a cup of coffee. Uh, We talk about a men's fellowship maybe on a Saturday morning or a women's fellowship maybe on a Thursday night. 
Uh, we even uh, label one of the rooms in our church buildings as a fellowship hall. Fellowship is a word that's used a lot in Christian circles, but oftentimes uh, what we use fellowship to mean is different than how the New Testament uses that word fellowship. Fellowship simply means to have in common. So that means true Christian fellowship is much deeper than sharing a cup of coffee and a donut with another Christian. Christian fellowship is, is much deeper than simply Christians coming together to do something they enjoy. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, those types of things that involve Christian friendship are really, really good things. Friendship is a beautiful, beautiful thing for Christians to share. But it's not exactly the same as fellowship. If fellowship means to have in common, then what is Christian fellowship? Well, Christian fellowship is having Jesus in common and doing Jesus's work together. We do Jesus's work together as we have Jesus in common. It's partnering together to do his work as we share Jesus together. Paul prays for the Philippian Christians with joy in part because he is thrilled that they have Jesus in common. He really is. And they have Jesus' work in common. They're doing Christ's work and partnering together. And that's the most important partnership on the planet. Oh, the best kind of fellowship is Christian fellowship. Because the best kind of partnership is Christian partnership. I mentioned a few minutes ago that you bring me joy because you bring me God. Now, what exactly do I mean by that? What did I mean? Well, I mean this. You bring me God every time that we love and learn and serve together for the glory of God. Every time I hear our praise team sing praises to God, every time I see our greeters loving on our visitors, every time I hear you encourage and pray with someone who's hurting, every time I see you handing out food to a low-income family, every time I hear our children's volunteers teaching God's Word to our kids, every time I see you serving the Lord, you bring me God. And that brings me much joy. Because remember, joy is grounded. In our unchanging God. You bring me God. And so you bring me joy. As you bring me God. It gives me great joy. I can't begin to tell you. How much joy it brings me to know Jesus. And to be able to serve him together with you. It brings me a lot of joy. I've just got to say to you today. Partnership with other Christians. Is critical. For maintaining Christian joy in your life. We live in a world where our circumstances and the people around us will try to steal our joy. We've seen a lot of circumstances this year trying to steal our joy. And we've been around a lot of people who are robbing us of our joy as well, haven't we? Well, it's so important that we immerse ourselves, that we surround ourselves in solid biblical Christian fellowship. It's so important. Regular weekly fellowship with other Christians who have Jesus and have his work in common with you will help inoculate you against those joy stealers in life. Well, Paul makes it clear in verses three through six. I have you on my mind. 
And I want to say the same to you this Thanksgiving week. I have you on my mind. Well, next up in verses 7 through 8, Paul says, Not only do I have you on my mind, I also have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. Paul writes in verses 7 and 8, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. When Paul says in verse 8 that he longs for the Philippian Christians with the affection of Christ Jesus, he's using a noun form of my favorite Greek word. Many of you know my favorite Greek word. It's that great word, splachnitsomai. <laughs> splachnitsomai. The verb form is only used by Jesus or about Jesus in the New Testament. Here we have a noun form of that word splachnitsomai. Uh, that word splachnitsomai, as I've shared with you in the past, uh, refers to a gut-wrenching compassion. That word splachnitsomai comes from that root word guts. And so the verb form means to carry out a gut-wrenching compassion. We see that uh, of the good Samaritan, as Jesus tells us about that foreigner who sees the man half dead on the side of the road and gets off his donkey and takes care of the man's needs. He puts him on his donkey, takes him down to the nearest inn and makes sure that he's nursed back to health. That Samaritan had a gut-wrenching compassion. We see this word used uh, by Jesus as he talks about the prodigal son when the father father was looking out into the horizon to see if his son was going to return home. One day he looked over the, the hillside and his son was making his way back home after that son had squandered his dad's money. And it says that he had this gut-wrenching compassion for his son and he hiked up his robe and the dad ran after his wayward son. Uh, Jesus uses that verb form. Here we have that noun form. So what is Paul saying as he uses this word for this gut-wrenching compassion. Well, Paul is saying that he has this deep-seated compassion and love and mercy for those Philippian brothers and sisters who he was partnering with in the work of ministry for Jesus Christ. He's saying, oh, I have, just like Jesus, this gut-wrenching compassion for you Philippian Christians I have this affection for you that runs very deep. I have this love for you that runs deep. I have this desire to see you grow in your faith and become all that God has created you to be. I can't even put into words how deep-seated these desires are that I have for you. And I can tell you, church, as your pastor, I can relate with that. I can relate with that. I can't put into words how it feels to be a pastor Entrusted with a congregation to lead. I really can't put it into words. I can't put into words this gut-wrenching compassion that I feel for you as you go through your trials in life. Uh, So often when you hurt, I hurt too. When you grieve, I grieve with you. Uh, So often when you're hurting, I am hurting. When you fail, I feel sometimes like I have failed. And when you are on fire for God and serving God with all your heart, you better believe I celebrate with you as you have those victories for Jesus Christ. Oh, I can relate with so much of what Paul writes here in verses 7 and 8. He says, I have you in my heart. Yep, I have you in my heart. 
All of you share in God's grace with me. That's so true. All of you share in God's grace with me. And he says, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I would say the exact same thing. I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Some of you I haven't seen in months, but I long for you with that affection of Christ Jesus. I may not have seen you in a while, but I'm here for you if you need me. You call, text, reach out to me anytime. I love you, church. And I have this deep-seated compassion like Paul had for the Philippians. I have a similar deep-seated compassion and love for you. Oh, I rejoice and thank God for you this week. I have you in my mind, but I also have you in my heart. And then third, Paul says in verses 9 through 11, I also have you in my prayers. I have you in my prayers. I don't know about you, but if the Apostle Paul was praying for our church, Impact Christian Church, I really want to know what he would be praying. Would he be praying that our offerings come in high enough to pay all the bills? Eh, Probably not. (laughs) Would he be praying that our attendance online grows larger than ever before? Maybe. Would he be praying that we reach not only 50 people for Christ by the end of December, but 100 people for Christ? Maybe. But this I know for sure. This I am certain Paul would be praying for our church. The same thing that he prays for the Philippian church in verses 9 through 11. Look at it again. Paul says, this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Wow! What an awesome prayer. What an awesome prayer. First of all, Paul wants our love to grow. And guess which Greek word he uses for love? Phileo, which translates as brotherly love. Eros, sometimes pronounced eros, which is trans, which is translated as romantic love. Or do you think he used the word agape, which translates as Christ-like, self-sacrificing love? You guessed it. He uses that Greek word agape, the highest form of love. That Christ-like love, that self-sacrificing love, that putting your needs above my own needs kind of love. That's what Paul prays for them. He prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, I believe it means this. The more you know God, the more you will love God. I really believe that. The more you love, know God, the, the more you will love God. And the more insight you have into the people around you, the more you will love those people around you. I really think it goes for both God and our relationships with others here on earth. The more you know God, the more you will love God. And I do believe the more that you know those around you as God knows them, the more you will love those around you. One of the reasons we don't love God the way that we should is because we don't know God. The way that we should. 
Paul prays that his Philippian ministry partners will get to know God better and better and better because the more they know God, the more they will love God. And remember, the greatest command in the whole Bible is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's the greatest command in all of Scripture, according to Jesus. And so the more we know God, the more we will love God. So, of course, he's going to pray. I want you to know God better and better. I want you to know Christ more and more, because the more you know him, the more you will be able to love him. And I would suggest to you that similarly, one of the reasons we don't love people the way that we should is because we don't know people the way that we should. When it comes to relationships, we tend to be lazy, especially those of us who are men. We tend to be lazy in our relationships. We keep our relationships with others kind of shallow and superficial and distant. We can't do that. Paul prays that our love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I don't think that only refers to our knowledge of God. I think it also refers to our knowledge of the people around us. One of the reasons that you get impatient with people around you, I believe, is because you don't understand the people around you. They don't think like you. They don't act like you. They don't behave like you. Well, congratulations, you've discovered yet some more proof that there's not a human clone of you out there somewhere. (laughs) There's no one on the planet exactly like you. Of course, people are going to speak and act and behave differently than you because you are the only you on planet Earth. Everyone else is at least just a little bit different than you. One of the church members that we have at Impact is a retired Christian counselor. And I don't think I'll ever forget, he told me a few years ago, Dane, whenever you look at someone, you need to read the words on their forehead, hurting person. Hurting person. And that really stuck with me because I just finished griping about somebody that was driving me up the wall. And he said, you know, Dane, you've got to see hurting person on that person's forehead. And I thought that was so insightful. If we had more insight into people's pain and their fears and their insecurities, certainly we would be more compassionate and loving toward them. Perhaps this week on Thursday, you'll be sitting at the Thanksgiving table with a family member who drives you up the wall. And you need to pray this week that God would give you more knowledge and depth of insight into that hurting person that drives you up the wall. Hmm. That annoyance probably comes from somewhere. Those irritating qualities are probably there for a reason. Pray that God will give you the compassion of Christ for that person and give you knowledge and depth of insight into why they do what they do. Well, in verse 11, Paul ends by saying that he wants his ministry partners to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is one of my greatest prayers for you. One of my greatest prayers for you. I want the fruit of the Spirit to grow in your life. I want you to grow in your love and grow in your joy and grow in your peace and grow in your patience and in your kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. All nine of those fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5, I want you to have those abound 
in your life and in your ministry. I want you to know and to carry out your spiritual gifts with joy and effectiveness. I want you to be able to boldly share the gospel with your family and friends and help lead them to Jesus Christ. I want you to experience the the joy and pleasure of personally baptizing friends and family members who give their lives to Jesus Christ. Remember our challenge between now and the end of December to personally lead at least one person to Christ. If you haven't done that yet in 2020, you still have five weeks left in the year. Don't miss this opportunity to lead your friends and family to Christ before the end of this year. Oh, I want to be so stinking fruitful for Jesus Christ. Don't you? And as your pastor, I want you to be so stinking fruitful for Jesus Christ. I want you to just have spiritual fruit just coming out of every pore in your body. I want you to be so fruitful for Jesus Christ. I I want Jesus' buttons to pop off his shirt because he's so proud of all that you've done for the kingdom of God. Church family, I want each of you to know that this Thanksgiving, I thank God for you. I have you in my mind. I have you in my heart. And I have you in my prayers this Thanksgiving week. And I want to end by giving you a challenge. Earlier in the service, I hope you wrote down the three names, excuse me, the three things for which you're grateful for. And to end this message, I want to give you this challenge. I want you to reach out to one Christian in our church this week and share a similar message that the Apostle Paul shared with us here in Philippians 1. I want you to reach out to one person and let them know that I am thanking God for you this week. You're on my mind, you're in my heart, and you're in my prayers. Now, I can't be that person. It was just last month we had Pastor Appreciation Day, and I was doted on plenty, so I don't want you to pick me. I get enough attaboys as a pastor. I want you to reach out to someone that probably doesn't get many attaboys, but they're faithful. They love the Lord. They serve the Lord quietly outside of the spotlight. And they probably get very little recognition. I can't help but think that God is laying some names on your hearts right now. And I want you to take this challenge. Reach out to that person this week. Maybe you shoot them a text. Maybe you make a phone call. Maybe you write them a little note. But I want you to reach out to someone in the next day or so. Before Thanksgiving. And tell them, I thank God for you. You're in my mind. You're in my heart. And you're in my prayers. Would you do that this week? Let's be thankful for all that God has blessed us with. Let's be thankful for each other. And let's share that thankfulness with that brother or sister in Christ that God lays on your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For this wonderful book of joy. I pray that all of us, Lord, would commit to reading all four chapters this week. And Lord, just soak in all 16 of those times that joy is mentioned. I pray, O oh God, that you would encourage us this week because many of us have been discouraged. I pray that you would lift us up because many of us have been down. And I pray that you would remind us afresh that as we are thanked, 
And even, Lord, when we're in that deep valley going through trials and difficulties, as we have an attitude of gratitude, as we thank you and as we thank those around us, oh, Lord, as a byproduct of that, you will lift us up. Lord, through our praise and through our thanks, you can actually lift our spirits. Thank you, Lord. Help us to follow in Paul's footsteps and remind those around us and remind those in our church Oh, I'm so thankful for you. You're on my mind. You're in my heart. And you're in my prayers. And I pray for anyone here today who has never made that decision to accept Christ, that right now they would reach out to you and say, Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And I choose today to follow you from this point forward. In Jesus' name. Well, if you made a decision to accept Christ this morning, let me say congratulations to you. It's the greatest decision you could ever make. But Jesus makes it clear that it's not just about praying a prayer. He makes it clear if we're serious about following Christ, we need to be baptized. And that water, as we go down in the water and come up out of the water, it really represents Jesus' death and resurrection. And it proclaims to the world, I'm serious about following Jesus Christ from this point forward. I want you to reach out to one of our prayer counselors. Their names and numbers are on the screen at the bottom. Reach out to one of them by phone or text right now. Let them know you made a decision for Christ. And they'll share with you how you can make plans with us to get baptized as soon as possible. Also, if you just need prayer, feel free to reach out to one of those prayer counselors as well. We'd love to pray with you for whatever that prayer need may be. And for those of you who are believers and followers of Christ who choose to take communion with us, I encourage you to have your bread and your juice ready. Think back over this last week how you may have failed God with the things that you've said, the things that you've done. Maybe you've dropped the ball in regard to your attitude. And as you're honest with yourself, you realize, you know what? My attitude's kind of stunk this last week. I encourage you to take those to the Lord right now. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to wash you clean because Jesus did say we shouldn't take of communion in an unworthy manner. So make sure you're right with God. And as much as possible, make sure you're right with others around you as well. And if so, let's take of the bread. As Jesus said, this represents my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, He took the wine or the juice said this represents the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. And we're so thankful for you this Thanksgiving week. You're so much better to us than we deserve. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, church. As we conclude our Thanksgiving service here, I would ask of you to lift up your voices with us one last time for this closing song of praise. God bless you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family.